This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Well, wouldn't you know it? <laughs> Hi, everyone. Ron Spomer with Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast, and I have got some wood on the table. Look at these beautiful items. Gorgeous walnut with incredible figure. These are from my friend John, who makes cool ammo boxes out of remnant walnut pieces that you would expect to find on a high quality walnut stocked rifle or shotgun and they are just absolutely beautiful does anyone need one of these things no you don't need one of these things but would you like to have one perhaps now if you're just listening to the podcast you'll just have to take my word for it these things are absolutely gorgeous it's just a little ammunition box this one is a only holds four rounds but it's for your breast pocket I'm going to Africa later this year, and I will be carrying that. It's going to match up nicely with this beautiful custom-made walnut stock rifle that I'm going to be carrying over there from Park West Arms. And it's just going to be fun, fun, fun. If you're interested in something like these cool ammo boxes, go to Open Range Creations and uh, ask him what he's got. It's OpenRangeCreations.com pretty simple and the man's name is john and he's a heck of a woodworker as you can tell from these beautiful specimens ah too bad you're if you're listening to this on a podcast take my word for it this stuff is absolutely gorgeous woodwork he's got several types of wood in here it looks like just some walnut and some maple and wow i'm just always impressed with his work but we are here to answer your questions and the team has put together a list for me and i will now see what we're up against this is someone who doesn't want their name used. Check in. <laughs> ah. With the surge in popularity of the 6.5 PRC, do you feel that there's any chance for a second look at the perfectly balanced 300 Ruger Compact Magnum? Oh, boy. You know, I don't, I don't feel that the 6.5 PRC is treading on the 300 Ruger Compact Magnum's um, legacy. But of course, it was created from that. The 300 RCM cartridge case was necked down to make the PRC. And that one is becoming really popular, but the 300 not so much. 
Now, why is that? I have not worked with the 300 RCM myself, um, primarily because there are so many 30s out there. Um, yes, it's one of the short, fat, compact magnums, but boy, you know, you had that 300 Remington Ultra Mag, the, the SOM short action Ultra Mag that I think is pretty close. And of course, the 300 WSM, which is probably more powerful. So I don't know. I don't think it's going to really come back. Um, it was a great Great case design, as that 6.5 PRC proves, but my hunch is that that 300 RCM is just sort of falling by the wayside. I might be wrong. I bet Ruger hopes I am. <laughs> Still, it's a great little cartridge. If I remember right, it fits in a 308 length action, but it gives you performance equal to or superior to the 30-06. So something to be said for it. And I might be wrong on that. Correct me if I am. It might be even more powerful than that, but not a lot. So uh, yeah, check it out. Just because it's not going to be a big seller doesn't mean you can't love it, by the way. And the matter of fact, a lot of these new cartridges that are, I think, really pretty, pretty well designed and they do a great job. And if they're not selling well, for whatever reason, they just want to have the popularity. You might be able to pick up a rifle chambered for it because nobody else wants it and get yourself a good deal. So you might want to be on the lookout for that. All right, this is from Eddie. He's not afraid to use his name by golly. Eddie asks, did farming, modern farming, push the greater prairie chicken out of middle America? And how do we bring them back? Oh, yes, absolutely, Eddie. Farming has done the trick on them. They used to be prairie chickens in Ohio. When the original pioneers and settlers started moving west and they got into Ohio, they started discovering these strange open grasslands surrounded by the forests. And then uh, the further west they got and the drier the climate, the more of these grasslands they would find. And in them, there were these beautiful birds, prairie chickens, a native grouse, obviously adapted to grasslands, tall grass prairie specifically. Now, they already knew of a type of prairie chicken. That was the heath hen along the eastern coast. The last heath hen died out on Martha's Vineyard in the heath. I'm not all that familiar with heath, but it's kind of a low brushy cover. Uh, and was apparently out on the islands uh, out there. And there were a lot of heath hens and they became extinct. They overhunted them back in the market hunting days, naturally, before anybody figured it out that there was actually a limit to the harvest. Um, and when they stopped it, the population started building back pretty darn nicely. And they thought, by golly, I think we saved them. And then one winter, there was an eruption of goshawks from the North Country. They came down and started targeting those poor heath hens, prairie chickens, and they wiped them out all but one. It was a male. What did they call him? Lonesome George or something. And he was seen out there on his dancing grounds in the spring, the lek. This is where the males would gather and dance in big numbers. You know, you'd get a dozen, two dozen, maybe even more. And they would all display to win the favors of the hens. And he was out there every spring doing his thing. Poor guy. Nobody came around. All of the other prairie chickens were gone. Isn't that sad? Jay. But the greater prairie chicken, now that was the one from Ohio westward. And as the farming came through there and tore out the grasslands and put in cornfields and all the rest, no more habitat for the chickens. But when they got into the Dakotas, Kansas, uh, Nebraska, that central plain state, right around the 100th meridian, 
they started uh, running out of of enough moisture to really farm it effectively. So it was more of a grazing enterprise, small fields and then grazing, but they didn't plow up all the native grasslands. And to this day, that remains central South Dakota and central Nebraska and down into Kansas, where it shifts a little bit more to the east, where they've got an area known as, um, oh, golly, my brain just went dead on me. Uh, the tall grass prairie, Flint Hills, the Flint Hills of Kansas around Emporia, Kansas. They were never able to plow that stuff up by and large because the soil was too thin. The chalk base layer was too close to the surface. So they retained their native tall grass prairie and they retained their prairie chickens. In other parts of Kansas where they could plow, there went the prairie chickens. So it's a pretty obvious lesson. Same with Nebraska, you know, sand hills of Nebraska, when they couldn't plow it up and farm it, uh, they still had plenty of prairie chickens as well as sharp-tailed grouse. But once they started, they discovered how they could get uh, underground water pumped up and put in the center pivots and huge cornfields in that. Well, then the prairie chickens went out. So where there are still native grasslands, and we're talking primarily tall grass, but it'll get into the shorter grasses called the mixed grass prairies. That's where you find prairie chickens. That's how you bring them back. And actually, they can be brought back because when I grew up in eastern South Dakota, southeastern South Dakota, we saw no prairie chickens where they used to be prairie chickens. But by the time I came along, that farm ground had been farmed and farmed and farmed for a couple of generations at least. And the prairie chickens were all gone. So we never saw any. All the times we were hunting pheasants and ducks and anything and everything else, including jackrabbits, we never saw any prairie chickens. But when the CRP program came in, and this is a huge conservation achievement, in 1985, we passed this bill to establish the Conservation Reserve Program, CRP. And they paid farmers to plant their fields, their crop fields, back in the native grasses. That did two things, three things, four things. It did a lot of great things for conservation, actually. Stopped soil erosion, purified the waters because it wasn't washing dirt down into the streams, provided wildlife habitat, built up soil. I mean, you can imagine when the pioneers came to the grasslands for the first time and plowed it, the soil depth was unbelievable because year after year after year, those plants had died and then broken down into the soil and built that soil up with incredible high carbon black soil, lots of organic matter and everything. So that's what the program was for. Well, what it did was it would take a 60 acre field, 160 acre field, sometimes even a, a half of a section, 350, 60 acres, just big chunks of ground covered up in switchgrass, big blue stem, Indian grass, all the tall native grassland species. And what happened after about 25 years, prairie chickens from Western South Dakota hopped from one of those fields to the next, as that habitat increased, they were able to increase their population. The chicks would survive better because they had more hiding cover from predators and the grassland gave them a place to nest. And they just sort of hopscotched their way east until I discovered them on our farm in Southeast South Dakota for the first time around, oh, I suppose it was 2010. That was quite a treat. I mean, I was seeing the restoration of wild grassland America. What a treat it was. So that's what will have to happen. Uh, unfortunately, Eddie, with the human population increasing the way it is and more and more people moving into this country, as well as other countries, it's always we've got to grow more crops. We've got to grow more crops and feed people. And until we come to grips with that and somehow figure out we cannot continue indefinitely turning everything into 
domestic grain crops, we're going to continue to lose our wildlife. So, you know, it's not a rosy picture. I think as a people, we could decide to place some limits just as we say, well, we're going to have Yellowstone National Park as a park. We're going to have a big grasslands national park to save some of these species. But it's never going to be like it was back when the entire country was just (laughs) wild. (laughs) But there's other some good news in the farming, too. What they discovered doing research in the 1960s, a friend of mine actually did that research. He was a little older than I am, not a lot, but <laughs> a little older. He did some wonderful research on prairie chickens and discovered that their populations peaked when 40% of the grasslands were converted into small grains. So the birds had extra food to eat, but they still had 60% of that habitat in grass, which they needed. So the combination was perfect. So maybe we could try something along those lines. And that's probably what's happening right now in the states that I mentioned, just inadvertently. Good, sizable grasslands with some crops mixed in. And boy, the chickens can just really thrive in a place like that. Hey, thanks for asking that good conservation question, Eddie. Now, this is from Robert. Never hear much about the 30-06 anymore. Wasn't it a big round in World War II? <laughs> hey, this is this is great, Robert. I know I am <laughs> showing my age now when people are asking, wasn't that something in the World War II? <laughs> yeah, you bet it was, Robert. The 30 out six was was made in uh, 1906, obviously. And it was our official U.S. military cartridge in World War One, used in the bold action Springfield rifle. Then by the time World War II came around, it was in the Garand or the Garand auto loading rifle. That was the 30 out 6 So it won two wars, as they like to say. It certainly helped contributed to it a lot. So, yeah, it was a big deal. And it's kind of the seminal cartridge that got us away from the traditional lever action, flat nose bullet cartridges like the 3030, the 4570, and a whole bunch more from that era, that 1890s into the World War One, And then that World War One era, or slightly before, they were starting to develop a lot faster cartridges. Um, and like the 253,000 Savage, that was around 1912. And the 30 of course, was a big one. And once the Doughboys, the soldiers, came back from World War One, and they had fired a bolt-action rifle, they sort of said, you know, those old lever-action 3030s don't quite match up anymore. So the, the bolt-action 30-06 really started to grow in popularity because it had so much more reach, so much more energy in the bullets that was effective on elk and moose and all sorts of stuff. And that sort of started it. That was where we got the switch from the lever action tubular fed magazines and the blunt bullets to the vertically stacked magazines and the bold actions and the high velocity bullets in those that had a lot more downrange reach. So yeah, that was a big round in World War II. And it still is really because we have a lot of cartridges that were made from the 30-06 case. The best known is probably the 270 Winchester. There's the 25-06 Remington, and there's the 35 Whalen. There's actually a 375 Whalen, that one you rarely hear of. That's a 65-06, the 280 Remington. That's now evolved into the 280 Ackley Improved Remington. So there are a lot of those, and then they pretty much shortened it to make the 308 Winchester, and there's all your short-action cartridges got started there. And then that one became the 260 Remington, the 7mm 08 Remington, the 243 Winchester, the 338 Federal, the 358 Winchester, just all kinds of them, and they all came out of that 30-06. So it's a pretty cool cartridge, and it's pretty important. 
All right. Good one from Robert. Now, this is William. And William wonders, do you have any recommendations on where to find vintage scopes like the one you're using in the Jack O'Connor video? Yeah. If you haven't caught that yet, look for it. I got to shoot one of Jack O'Connor's Model 70 Winchester rifles in 270, and it had a Lyman Alaskan two and a half power scope on it. <laughs> Real funky, skinny looking little old scope, but still works. It had a, a big post crosshair reticle on it. Instead of what we're used to on a duplex or something, it just had a big post and then a crosshair for the horizontal that was thin. Those are pretty popular back then. Didn't make for the best targeting rifle. I didn't shoot a very good group with it, but uh, that's what was the big deal back in those days. And that was the first waterproof scope. I think you still had to keep the uh, caps on it, the turret covers. But once you had it covered that way, it didn't leak. And that was a big deal back in those days. Now, where do you find vintage scopes like that? I honestly do not know. Um, I'm sure there are some places out there. I think you're just going to have to do an internet search for that. Um, surely someone has saved those. Every once in a while, I'll hear about somebody who collects scopes, old scopes, the way many people collect old rifles. So you're know, just going to have to snoop around like that. But here's what happens with scopes, by the way. You might wonder if they... Uh, ever wear out or break down. And if you're not beating them up and stuff, you'd think they would probably last forever. Well, what happens is they start to leak air inside where they had O-rings. And of course, the original ones didn't have much for anything of sealants. Maybe they use some leather discs or something to try to seal some parts. But at any rate, when the air gets inside and gets on the lenses, it starts to degrade them. They didn't way back when, when they first started making scope. And actually, Scopes go clear back to the Revolutionary War. They were using some on some sniper rifles back then, and they probably even had some in the 1850s or the 1840s, but they didn't have any kind of sealant in there. And after a while, those the glass would just start to degrade. So that's something you might look for on these old scopes. Of course, if you just want to have a collection of them, you really don't care what the optical quality is. I guess it doesn't matter, but... Uh, they do eventually wear out in that fashion. All right. Uh, hey, I hope you find some there. Um, that would be kind of cool to have a collection of old scopes. I might even get into that myself. This is Robin J. Just how flat do shooting cartridges need to be? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. And we're always bragging about my flat shooting this and that. And I did a couple of videos on flat shooting cartridges. I just kind of went through them all and tried to figure out which one would actually shoot the flattest out to reasonable hunting distances and came up with some interesting discoveries. A lot of people like to, to listen to those or watch those. But it's a good question. Flat. What exactly is flat? Well, what we're trying to do is flatten out the trajectory curve. When you fire a bullet out of a barrel, let's say, is level to the earth, the bullet immediately starts to drop. A lot of people see illustrations where the bullet goes up and then starts to drop. That's not accurate because what they're really trying to tell you there is that you've canted your rifle barrel up so that you can throw the bullet above the target and it'll fall into it. Because you think about gravity, it is immediately pulling everything. That bullet doesn't leave the barrel and suddenly put on the afterburners and climb. <laughs> it's just floating through the air and falling because gravity is pulling it down. So it has a parabolic curve en route to the target. The more you tilt that barrel up, the further it'll go before it hits the ground and or your target. Of course, if you shoot too high up and you got your intermediate 
distance targets, you're going to miss those. You go over the deer, but then you hit the 300 yards later, you hit, can hit another one kind of a thing. So if you can flatten that curve so it doesn't drop as much, then you can take a shot at an unknown distance and have a much better chance of dropping the bullet in there. If you can keep your bullet within, say, the vital zone of your animal, then the flat shooting cartridge really is an advantage. And that's why magnums became so popular in the 20th century. Back then, we looked out there at that elk or deer and said, man, it's kind of small. I wonder how far he is. I don't know, Harry. What do you think? I don't know. He looks like about 250 to me. You ought to be able to hit him. Oh, no way, man. That's more like 350, maybe even 400. Those are the kind of arguments we would have. So you really didn't know. So the good thing about that was you got closer. <laughs> the bad thing was some guys didn't want to get closer. They were lazy and they would launch one anyway. And that's never a good idea. So that's why we wanted flatter shooting cartridges. So the 270 was a 270 Weatherby Magnum. The 300 or the 30 out six became the 300 Weatherby Magnum or the 300 Winchester Magnum. The seven Remington Magnum. All oh, the Magnums were all the rage because you could get another 20 to 50 yards before your bullet fell under the target. So if you misjudge the range, you were probably still going to hit him. Well, things started to change roughly 1999. I think that's when Leica came out with the first successful handheld laser rangefinder, And what a game changer that was because you knew exactly within a yard or two in either direction, if that animal was 300 yards or 400 yards or 216 yards, you nailed it. And then if you know the ballistic curve, the drops of your cartridge, you don't have to be all that flat anymore. And that's why the 6.5 Creedmoor became so popular. One of the reasons it doesn't recoil much. It has high BC bullets, so they don't deflect in the wind as much and drop. Yeah, they drop a lot. It's not a flat shooting cartridge, but that wasn't a problem because you had your ballistic chart, you knew what the drops were, and you could compensate by dialing your scope or selecting a stadia wire on the crosshair or something like that. Those were big, big changes. So how flat the cartridges need to be? Robin, they really don't need to be flat. Although something comes with flat more than just the trajectory, and that is the energy. Generally, the flatter a bullet shoots means it has a higher velocity. So that means it's going to be carrying more energy. And if it's also an, an efficiently shaped bullet, it will retain that energy better. That's the benefit of BC in a bullet, ballistics coefficient. It just means the bullet is extremely efficient at retaining its energy and velocity. So there's why you might want a faster shooting. And don't worry so much about the flat part because you can compensate for the drop. All right. Good question. Really gets us deep into the ballistics of all this stuff. This is 460 style and 460 style asks, have you and would you go handgun hunting? Well, I can take this sentence two ways. I've been hunting for handguns. When I find one at a good price, I get it. <laughs> but you probably mean I'm hunting for something else using a handgun. <laughs> I knew that's what you were up to. Yes, I have gone hunting with handguns. I like to hunt tree squirrels with a 22. I've got a Ruger single six, and it is a real fun challenge to stalk the squirrel woods with those open sight and pick them off. I miss more than I pick off, but I go for headshots, and when I get them, I get them. But that is really fun. I have tried turkey hunting with a 357 Magnum. 
Turkey's still out there. <laughs> and I did some hunting with a 41 Remington Magnum and some with a 44, but I've never been a big handgun hunter. I like the idea of it. I like the challenge of it, but I just hate the noise of it. I don't mind the recoil so much. I can handle that. I've been taught how to handle recoil from a handgun. So I've shot 460 Smith & Wessons and 500 Smith & Wessons repeatedly and uh, still have my wrists. Uh, so that worked out. But man, the muzzle blast, I've got to double protect my ears. I got to put in the foamies and put some shells over it. So whew, well, I'm out hunting and something happens quickly. I want to be able to take the shot. So that's why I'm just not a big handgun hunter. Some of my friends absolutely dote on it, and they can shoot better with their handguns at long range than I can with some of my rifles. It's unbelievable what they can do. So that's a good question. A lot of folks really love handgun hunting, and there's a lot of it done, especially for whitetail and black bear. So if you're interested in it, I'd say go for it. All right, this is from Brian, and he asks, do you really think Jack O'Connor shot a running deer at 600 yards? Sounds like a tall tale, but we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> well, that's what I'm going to do because I think he did. Uh, I've never noted in any of Jack's writings that he liked to stretch the truth. He's pretty straightforward. And I would guess he might have been a little bit hesitant about confessing to shooting one at 600 yards just because people would call him a liar. But I would guess he did it because he was such a trained shooter and he shot that 270 so often that I bet you he knew the drops and drifts on it almost instinctively. He used to shoot running jackrabbits in the desert at 300, 400 yards. And if you can take a jackrabbit running at that distance, a deer might be a little easier. And then there's also an apocryphal story about um, Elmer Keith, the nemesis of O'Connor in that same era, who shot a running, gosh, finished off a mule deer for one of his clients. Old Elmer was a, a hunting guide here in Idaho. And he apparently had a client who had wounded a buck and he needed to finish him off. And when this buck appeared heading up the mountain or about to go over it or something at a long, long range, Elmer took a couple shots at it and rolled it with his 44 Magnum handgun. I think it was a 44 Magnum. It might have been the predecessor, which was uh, he was working on one that more or less was a 45 Colt that he topped up or something. But at any rate, he was using one of his handguns. <laughs> and then, of course, the eyebrows really went up. Come on. But people have duplicated the shot. You know, people who know how to work with their handgun and the drops and stuff. Sure enough, you can get that bullet out there. So apparently he actually did it. <laughs> it's a wild story. You might want to check it out sometime. You can find that story in his book. Hell, I was there. <laughs> that is an entertaining book. We're going to do a little bit of video on it someday. I'm going to read some parts of it. And we're going to discuss whether or not he's pulling our leg <laughs> or doing the real deal. We will find out. All right. Here is a question from Dan. What is the perfect rifle for a trapper or someone investing in the fur? Any idea on what would cause less fur damage? Oh, yeah, good fur cartridges. Yeah, it's not the perfect rifle, obviously. It's the perfect cartridge and or bullet combination. So I have done a f more than a fair amount. I used to be a trapper back in my teens and into my early 20s. And in fact, I paid for half of my college tuition by being a trapper. Red Fox were bringing about 30 bucks uh, back in those days. Badgers, coons, coyotes, pretty much mink. Everything I got was right around $30, $35 a piece in that era. And that was pretty big money in those days. But I would also shoot. If I were out deer hunting and I had a chance at coyotes, 
we figured we could cover the cost of the hunt by bringing some coyote pelts home. So I obviously used whatever I was hunting deer with. Mostly it was a six millimeter Remington back then, but I eventually got into the 270 and then there's a little bit of problem with the fur. Even the six millimeter sometimes can tear them up pretty well. Tore up a couple of fox. And so I went on a mission to find a bullet that wouldn't do that. You put the bullet in, it would stay inside and kill the animal instantly. And then you had a beautiful pelt and you didn't waste it because, hey, let's face it. Nature makes some beautiful products and they're sustainable. They're all organic. They're free range. They're shade grown. Nobody tortures them or anything. It's just like nature makes it. We utilize it. It's just like taking wild asparagus. So I'm all for taking excess fur. If it's a sustainable population, go for it. Why waste nature's bounty? So I'm harvesting coyotes mainly with a 22250. That can get pretty violent on pelts. So I discovered the Hornady SX bullet. It was a pretty thinly jacketed soft lead core bullet, 50 grains as I remember. The idea was that this bullet would go inside, break up and not tear things up and pop out. So that's what I used. Nowadays, I would go with the 17 or hmm. I'd still go with that 22250 if I thought I was going to have some long shots, but I've learned over the years that most of the coyotes I call in come in pretty darn close. So maybe a 221 fireball with a light bullet like that, uh, or a 17 fireball. The 17s can get a little bit iffy. You really have to pick your shots and put them perfectly behind the shoulder. And I think you'll do just fine that way. A lot of guys will do that. So there's the 17 Hornet and a few others. Oh, the 204 Ruger. Don't forget that one. I used that one season and I only had problems with one pelt. Everything else was bullet in, bullet stays in and instant demise. And the pelts were just perfect. So that's one I would probably look to because it has the same trajectory as a 22250 pretty much. So you still can reach out there. Yeah, that's the one I would go to right now. Unless you're really calling things in close and or going with Red Fox. Pretty fragile little guys. You've got to really be careful with those. Similar with Bobcats. Yep, those are my recommendations. Try to find yourself a bullet that's lightly jacketed and designed to break up quickly. And uh, that should do the trick for you. Well, that looks like the last question for this episode. So Ron Spomer here, thanking you guys for joining me and inviting you to check out our Ron Spomer Outdoors channel and go to ronspomeroutdoors.com, our website. Lots of articles on there on guns and shooting and ballistics and outdoor gear and scopes and optics and all kinds of fun stuff. In the meantime, hunt honest and shoot straight. search for the one they call king but who will take his throne tune in to waypoint tv's battle for silver saturday may 18th from 12 to 6 p.m eastern presented by abyss battery waypoint tv when you go out there and the fish are where you think they are any one of these casts could be the bite it's the most exciting fishing that i know right here at hogs cave Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.